save your money first. That was one of the big things we did when, um, when we knew we were going to start our own company. We set up the um, initial business formation in 2009, did not become uh, or did not quit our day jobs and go full time until June of 2010. And hmm. that was because we did not want to quit our jobs, start working and realize, well, crud, I either have to say yes to everything because I don't have any money or I have to go find another job right away because I don't have any money. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, it's a serial entrepreneur that has grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as a founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help, feel free to go to strategymeeting.com, and we're always here to, to answer your questions. Now today we have another great guest on the podcast, Amy Balliette, I think as I, I pronounced it close, at least close enough. Um, but Amy started, I think, her first venture when she's around 17 years old, and I think it was a ice cream can- ice cream and candy parlor, if I'm not mistaken. Did that while she was in uh, high school, um, and the dad, or jokingly, her dad was looking for a new owner. Said, "Why don't or she's, or she said that uh, she would do it, and then uh, kind of went from there and took that over for a period of time. Went to uh, film school, I think, and then uh, got part of the way through college. Went off to Seattle after graduation. Um, did a, a bunch of different jobs." Didn't, uh, and then she uh, did a few other things, monetized some websites with affiliate marketing, did some SEO, and then uh, brought herself to where she's at today. So without rooting too much of the surprise, welcome onto the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Devin. I appreciate it. So with that, I just kind of gave the very quick run through of a, a bit of your journey, but let's take, uh, take us back in time a little bit to 17 years old and running an ice cream and candy parlor. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was kind of one of those situations where, just like you said, I I was joking. I told my dad, oh, I'll own it because he was in charge of finding a new owner for this place. And Mm. I said, I'll take over. And then he woke me up bright and early the next morning to go get a business loan from Key Bank, um, which, you know, I, I very much now remember because also when you get your first business loan from a bank, you somehow become very loyal to that bank going forward. <laughs> so um, I got my first business loan at, at age 17 um, and bought this place. It was about a, a 1500 square foot um, kind of soda fountain, everything shop in the center of a, um, of a summer vacation resort. And this place, this, this place is called the stand. It had been built um, in the late 1890s. Um, it had evolved into so many different things over the years. When I took over, it was primarily a penny candy store and an ice cream parlor. So, so let me um, just ask one real quick question, on, and not to interrupt your journey. No but, problem. You know, did your dad co-sign for loan, or did the bank just give you a loan for buy a whole business at seventeen years old? Oh, he co-signed. <laughs> he definitely co-signed for that loan. Um, I'm just I curious because he, he woke you up, he went and got a loan. And I'm just like, I don't know of a lot of banks that would give a 17-year-old what is what you're describing as a business, a big enough loan in order to, uh, to, to carry that. So it makes perfect sense. So anyway, go ahead on your journey. Yeah. And so, I mean, from there, it was kind of my job to figure out how, to, how I wanted to run, this, run the place. I had been going there my whole life as a kid. Uh, you know, I, my dad used to give me a dollar to go to any candy store and I'd walk home with a bag full of candy. I thought it was the best thing. 
And so I want to kind of keep that of innocence at the play and, and have it be something kids could build memories. But I also want to be something that adults I wanted to spend time in. Um, at the time, coffee shops just taking off in Ohio, you know, Starbucks wasn't yet or anything like that. So I said, oh, I'll make it a coffee shop and, you know, added some extra features to it like that. Um, but it was a lot of fun. I, I ran it for my junior year and my senior high school, made enough money to um, buy a nice car, put in money for college. Um, mm. And then I went off to film school from there. Um, and, you know, I love film school, but I wanted to get out of Ohio. So mm. I got through film school as fast as humanly possible. I, I got out of school in about two and a half years, uh, four-year degree, and moved to Seattle. And so what, just out of curiosity, so you go to the film school now, what made, what took you to Seattle? Was it just a, or the nice uh, atmosphere or where you always wanted to go? Or, you know, just out of all the places after graduation, what decided, oh, I'll go to Seattle? For a long time, I gave people really kind of fake professional reasons for going to Seattle because I didn't want to tell people that, I got an idea at age 16 and just stuck with it. But in reality, when I was 16, I had um, some cousins who lived in central Washington who were out visiting us in Ohio. And they said, Seattle is the right place for you, Amy. That's where you will thrive. That's where you need to live. And so I just started telling people that I would move to Seattle after I graduated college. Mm -hmm. And here I am a couple of weeks from graduation and people started calling me on my BS. Basically said, are you moved to Seattle or not? Because um, none actually believed I would. And mm. I didn't believe I would. But within a few weeks, I, I had found a place to live out in Seattle. And I was driving across the country um, with my van packed to the brim and moving out there. So um, that was 2004. I thought I'd live in Seattle for a couple years because I never really left Ohio for college or anything, figured this was my experience in that. But I've been in Seattle since 2004. I fell utterly in love with the city and completely understand why my family told me I would thrive in Seattle. It's a, it's a fantastic place to be. Hmm. So now, so now you, you're, so you basically said, I'm always going to move to Seattle. And then people called you on it. So you said, okay, I'm going to follow through and I'll actually move with Seattle. So <laughs> You moved to Seattle after graduation, and then how did you find a job? Was it you you went into film, you know, film? And I think when we talked before, he did marketing and as under as a minor because uh, your dad told you, you need to fall back. And so, you know, when you're looking for a job and kind of what you wanting to do, how did you or how did you land your jobs or what did you do in Seattle? Well, my first three months, I played my guitar in the street outside of baseball games um, and football games. And um, made like fifty bucks an hour doing that, so I kind of kept doing that for a while. What, you say um, fifty dollars an hour? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did pretty well. I I learned that if you play the same four or five Motown songs on repeat, <laughs> people just keep throwing money at you at games, especially at the end of the game when they walk out for drunk. So I made a lot of money, just, you know, busking basically. Um, I did day labor for a while and got all the jobs because I had a van. So I was able to drive people to and from, mm. um, I look back at that and think, man, that was not the safest decision I made in my life, but it was something for a bit. And about three months into being in Seattle, I finally found a job that I felt like, um, 
was was a job that say who had just graduated from college proudly take. It was um, the company called Entertain Works. They were in insights and research on movie trailers. So I got to kind of be a part of this experience, really understanding what moves people in a three minute or less movie trailer and how to, how to kind of re-edit that trailer and, and tell people the right story so that in that short snippet, they want to walk away and say, hey, I want to go see that film and they know what they're going to get out of it. Mm. Um, so I did that for a while. Um, absolutely doing that. But my job sporadic, it was on weekends primarily because we we're getting people as they're exiting theaters and stuff like that. Um, and when I met my spouse, I realized I needed a nine to five just so that I could actually, you know, see see people at a normal set of hours instead of instead of just, you know, have my weekdays off and work my weekends. Mm. Um, so I got a nine to five editing, um, editing video as for a company that was doing mobile video on hand, um, which basically means they were delivering really, really low quality, meaning like super pixelated video to flip phones because the iPhone didn't exist yet. Mm. So it was it was a really weird kind of in-between media play before the iPhone existed. We all knew something was coming that was going to just crush the business. But mm. for a couple of years, it was a fun thing to do before I then switched entirely into online marketing. So, so you do that for a period of time. And I, I think one of the other things you mentioned is you're kind of started getting into the online marketing and then the SEO and graphic design and other things is, you know, you're, you decided to, before that you did the, the jobs and, and you went into that and decided you're going to do your own thing is that you, uh, you didn't, ha- you didn't want to rely on other people or you didn't like third parties or other agencies because they didn't necessarily do as good a job or they weren't as on top of things. So maybe dive into a little bit of your experience. So you say, okay, I'm going to go out, start doing my own thing. going to start my own business and start to uh, build that. But how was that with not, not trusting them or how did that kind of overlay and set you up for later on? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, basically, I, um, you know, when I moved entirely into marketing, suddenly I was no longer the one creating content. I had to hire agencies to create content for me because I had two else on my plate, so I could both. And I kept finding that different agencies would either completely skirt accountability and blame freelancers if things weren't turned in on time or if things weren't delivered correctly. Um, or some agencies would quote me, um, you know, one price to land me and then kind of do a bait and switch and charge double, triple later down the road. And it just drove me nuts, especially because I knew how to build those things. I knew quick design. I knew web development. I knew how long it would take me as somebody who wasn't an incredible expert in it. And so mm-hmm. I knew I was being, um, kind of fed some lies and, and I felt like, this is the biggest issue when a marketer goes and hires an agency. Agencies can try and take advantage of a marketer's lack of knowledge of what the process is or how long it takes to produce quality content. Um, and they can damage, especially if code related. Then times they just kind of, depending on the agency you hire, might just tell you saying that's one line of code takes five hours to do when in reality it's the line of code. Um, mm. So it, it really got under skin. And um, 
you know, is working at startups and companies that couldn't afford the big agencies of the world that don't do those things. We were working with a lot of smaller agencies and that was a part of the problem. Hmm. So when my company, like I, I basically started out to do a completely different business model with my old business partner. We were producing websites and monetizing them through lead generation and affiliate marketing. But I was creating infographics for those sites for the SEO value. And it led people asking us the cryptographics for them. And I saw that an interesting opportunity to, to build a, a small company that helped creative work to march. But it wasn't my origin. It wasn't my plan. It was actually stopgap. We felt like it could kind of get us some revenue while we were building up the other websites. Hmm. Um, but as I started to do that more and more and kind of react to, um, the demand from our clients, I getting really positive feedback. I would say to clients, here's what I like about agencies. So here's what I promise you won't do. And here's what I promise you will do. Hmm. And it started to make me realize I can build an entire agency, not just around the, the product of visual communication and visual content marketing but also around the source of being wholly accountable, offering flat rates instead of charging hourly, um, being incredibly schedule driven to ensure that a marketer can plan their entire campaign, knowing that they're gonna get the content on the days that are specified. And most importantly, not working with freelancers. We mm. brought our entire creative team in house and really make sure that our, our clients know that they're working directly with people who are salary employees of Killer Visual Strategies, my company, um, salaried employees of the company who have been company for on average seven years. The company's mm. 10 years old. We have an average seven year tenure. Um, and so for me, so maybe I've one, because I, I, one thing I think is interesting on that is there's a lot of parallel, I think almost across most service industries in the sense that, you know, the biggest gripes that people have or that it feels like it's an open bill and say, attorneys are, are just as, are, are horrible at it. Uh, people feeling like, hey, this is an open bill and nobody, you know, it, it's forever, it, the, the bill never ends, it's, it's forever racking up and I don't know where the hour is spent. And if I call them for five minutes, they charge me a half an hour and those type of things. And so just a little bit is interesting, the commonalities when you start to say, what are the things that are almost universal across the service industries and it's those type of things of, hey, you know, if, if you just treat people like they are a customer and they would, you know, how you'd want to be billed and how you'd want to be treated and get the things done when you say they're going to be done and on cost and on demand, then you're going to be heads and tails above what most other people are going to be in the industry because the industries are always set up to them just make it a very bad experience. And so, you know, you did that. Now, one thing I think we talked about as well is that you had a business partner for a period of time. And then I think he made an exit or he left or you bought him out or something. So maybe your mind. So as you're going along, how did that work? Um, that was a kind of long pulling of the bandaid off in a sense, instead of ripping it off. Um, mm. He was somebody who I really cared about. We had a really good friendship and our original business model was one that he perfectly fit into um, the affiliate website. And that affiliate web model was his idea as well. So he was really passionate about it as well, but he didn't want to start an agency. He didn't want to start a service-based business. It wasn't where passion was. 
So when I kind of pushed us into that action, he followed out of loyalty to me, but not out of a passion or love for mm. what he was doing. And it really just kind of got to a point where it became clear that the lack of that passion made it hard for him to happy about doing it every day, made it hard for him to, um, you know, put in all that an entrepreneur normally put in because other good ideas kept him that he wanted to pursue instead, rightfully so. So we just kind of hit a point where as much as he was trained really hard to make it work, it wasn't the right anymore because it was just something where myself and my team, um, we were all kind of gun-ho forward with killer, hitting every goal of killer, living the values of killer. And he was in a different state, um, kind of a remote salesperson, but not really somebody who felt like he was part of the team or on the trip we were on. Um, so we had a conversation about it, and it was actually a, a really painless. You, one question, now, and I'll get mm -hmm. late, get to your, certainly your conversation, but before you do, was there a, you know, because I think that there's a decent amount of people that start into endeavors and for a number of reasons, a partnership doesn't work out. And to your point, it can be, you're still good friends with them. You still have a good relationship, but one, they don't have the time or two, they don't have the interest or the skill sets have changed or the businesses change, or they can't support everybody for, you know, financially, whatever those are. And yet you try to your point, it's a tearing off the bandaid slowly. You don't want to make them feel bad or you don't want mm -hmm. to, wreck a relationship or, you know, they are still an owner in the business. And so you just kind of limp along. So what was that? Was there a triggering point or what was there a thing that was a catalyst that said, okay, we better have this conversation as time or what was kind of the, when you finally said, okay, we, we're, this isn't going to work anymore. We've got to adjust something. How did that kind of come about? Well, it was years in the main. We had had a lot of conversations. We had discussed issues and had to get them fixed. And sometimes things would work well, and then it would things would kind of revert back. Um, and so the catalyst was really just looking at the data, looking at the numbers, and recognizing that for the position that he was in, it just wasn't generating the um, success in the company that we needed. And so we needed somebody different in that role. Um, it was a pain. It was, I mean, every every type of a breakup like that, painful in some way. But he was super understanding and, um, you know, really, really peaceful about the entire thing. We actually, anybody you ever talk to when they have a business partnership, um, Oftentimes, they talk about months and months and months of this arduous battle, this leave back and forth. And we had everything but in three days. Um, and yes, I, you know, I come out at a, a very good valuation because I wanted to make sure that um, after his seven years of investing in the company that he was getting a good earn out from that. So he got a good amount of money from the um, from also being bought out. And that was also a piece. It was more than the company was worth at the time. He knew it and I knew it. We both felt like it was the right decision given mm. what he had put in. So it was definitely a situation where, you know, yeah, it's, it's always hard and it's always incredibly heartbreaking. Mm. But I think that out of every possible business breakup that has ever existed, I think we would probably be the ones who are 
who, who came out of it the best um, with the least amount of, of bruises, basically. So, so now, I one out. La- can, now one question. So you, you know, you figure out how to come out with the least amount of bu- bru- bruises, you know, you part ways, he goes his way, he gets a, a good, you know, cash out, so to speak. And you're saying, Hey, I'm still really passionate about the business. Still want to do it. I think there's a lot of potential. So, you know, now, now, now not having that partner, not having that person that you started with, it can be a bit, I would assume a bit lonely in the sense that, you know, before when you have a partner for all the sometimes headaches or other issues they may cause, or the, you know, the, the infighting or the, or even the good times, you know, in disagreement, you know, you always have that person to bounce an idea off of, or you have a person that will be the sounding board or they'll help you to pull the load or to do other things. And so now you're doing all that by your own, you know, how was that transition to not having that partner? Did you go run out and get another partner right off the bat? Did you keep it by your, you know, keep it and say, I'm just going to keep running it and I'll just do it without a partner or kind of how did you deal with that shift and a bit of dynamics with the business? I think that part of that comes from really slowly pulling the bandaid off. I was already in a position where my executive team felt more like partners to me than, than he did. And Mm. so as a result, um, it it was kind of an easy switch. Um, It was really just, we had been for the longest time ruling by committee. Um, Really, you know, yes, he and I would have ideas and yes, I would, um, you know, bounce, bounce ideas off of each other, but always kept the executive team looped into those conversations. Mm. So it was almost as if we were five parts and we went down to five. That's really what it felt like versus two partners down to one. Mm. Um, I mean, yes, there was still kind of that shift in um, now I'm the only one who's kind of bearing the, the responsibility and carrying that weight. But mm. I, I really lucked out to have this exec team that had been with us from almost the very beginning. And as a result, they, they just had been through all the punches of the company and they had a love and passion for the company that um, really, you know, they saw the same vision I did. And that was also part of the catalyst when, when the time came to exit my partners, cause they came to me and um, well, a couple of different people in the company came to me and, and, brought up that we were heading in one direction and he was heading in another. And so it didn't feel too, um, too hard to, to switch. It really didn't. The thing that was hard was just knowing that I've got this friend who I'm not talking to every day anymore. I'm not, mm. you know, on Slack going back and forth every day anymore, um, sharing gifts and things like that. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, it was more the loss of a friend than the loss of a partner at that point. Hmm. Okay. No, that makes sense. So, so now fast forwarding to a bit to where you're at today. And I think you said, you know, you made some adjustments in the, the structure of the business. You sold the original business to the parent company and set that up as a bit more of a portfolio of companies with a new agency and doing some things with LinkedIn learning and public speaking and writing books. And you can see it for those that are looking at the audio, some of the, the digital and uh, physical copy of the books. So kind of bring us up to speed. What are you doing today? And kind of how is that bringing full circle as to, you know, are you still doing the same business and how has that evolved and what are you doing? So at the end of 2018, I sold the company to a parent company called Kelton Global. Um, Kelton Global is an amazing insights and research firm out of LA. 
Um, Kelton had this great vision that we're still pursuing as a group, which is really cool. Um, they wanted to make sure to get to, to kind of buy up some of the best of the best agencies out there um, so that they could bring more services to their end clients, but also so that the agencies they purchased could bring more services to their end clients. Mm. And so we are a, a great portfolio of companies where all of our services complement each other. And it really allows us to deliver better work to our clients, better service to our clients. Um, but we are, we, we kind of came to this realization at the start of 2020, actually before the pandemic, um, you know, really hit the world in the way that it did. Um, but the conclusion was we can be an insights driven marketing agency by combining all of our agencies. So we are slowly but surely bringing all of our agencies under one umbrella called material. Um, and material is, um, you know, 1200 people strong, some of the uh, best thinkers in the industry. Um, we work with the bulk of the Fortune 500, quite a lot of Global 2000 clients, helping their end to end strategy. And by end to end, I mean, starting at insights and research where we can help build their brand strategy, help bring new products to the market, do their customer segmentation, mm. all the way through to, um, to kind of, you know, delivering to an end client and tracking that success. And so it's, it's really kind of a, um, a line service that we do as a group together for our clients. Um, now, in the process of that, I was approached by uh, my publisher, Wiley Publishing, um, in about the middle of 2019, right when we changed our name from Killer Infographics to Killer Visual Strategies. Mm. And Wiley, Wiley asked me to write a book about visual communication and visual strategy, something that could be given to marketers where a marketer can walk away and have a really strong idea of how to approach visual content marketing and why it matters, but also how to hire the right freelancers or the right agency or the right in-house team so that they can really own the outcome. Um, and so that that's you know exactly the type of book I had been wanting to write. So I wrote the book in um, 2019. It was released in June 2020. It has been listed as one of the best marketing books of 2020 by the Porchlight Book Awards, which is a really prestigious, um, a pre prestigious uh, awarding group that, mm. you know, we're alongside authors like Seth Godin, which just blows my mind because he's one of my favorite authors. Mm. Um, it was also listed as the best book design of 2020 by Graphic Design USA. Um, so I'm really proud of my team because they designed the book. It practices what we preach. It's filled with a ton of visual content to help you understand and grasp the concepts. Um, and in 2021, really what we're doing is kind of just doubling down on what we have always done. At, at Killer, we have grown by sharing what we know, by empowering our customers and by empowering our competitors. We want mm. everybody to know how to produce great visual content because if everybody's producing great visual content, then we don't live in the world where right now, 99% of the content out there is really low quality. And a lot of marketers tend to think that that is the bar and they only have to hit that bar. Mm. When in reality, you can spend a lot less money promoting your content 
if you just spend a little bit more money on creating quality visual content. So, you know, we're, I, I plan to be writing many other books. I've got a, a list of books that I'm supposed to get out in the next three years. So I'm going to be writing a lot more books. Um, I've been a LinkedIn learning instructor for years and um, soon to be seeing uh, the 20 rules of visual communication. That's my next course coming out in a couple of months. Um, and I so plan now, to kind of- maybe, And maybe just to dive in, just because there are so many more things that we could talk about and we're getting to the end of the podcast. So I want to give mm -hmm. you enough time to always answer the last two questions I always have. Definitely. So all right, maybe we'll dive to there now. Um, cool. So the first question I always ask is, so along your journey that we just discussed, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? Oh, geez. I've made a lot of bad business decisions because I think that you can't get to where, where my company has gotten today without making a lot of bad business decisions. But mm. oddly, the worst was the initial formulation. We formed initially as a C-Corp. A C-Corp worked for the original business model, but still wasn't really the right fit. We should have been an LLC that um, took an S-Corp um, election. That's what mm. we should have done. But because we started as a C-Corp, the tax implication of that was immense. All in all, we spent about 150000 in taxes in the first two years that we would not have had to spend if we were an LLC. Mm. So I think that we can even track that back to, I didn't get a lawyer until two years into the company. So mm. really, it, it's not even starting as a C-Corp was the mistake. The mistake was not hiring a lawyer from the very beginning. That was the mistake, in my opinion. And there's a good shameless plug for me that if you ever need an electoral, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, do it. It's true. <laughs> but but I think that but I I think that I I'd extrapolate that out as to whether it's a lawyer, a CPA, whether it's other people in the yep. business. You know, too often you think as an entrepreneur, hey, I can do this myself and I can figure it out and we'll be we'll do it just fine. And some except for some aspects of the business, that's a great approach. You can figure it out, and you don't you know you you can't go to the opposite extreme of you hire experts and mentors and everything in every industry and you go broke yes. before you even get started. But for those areas that are going to be impactful for the business and one is, you know, business formation and how you do taxes. And I'd say, you know, legal on the lawyers for some of the things and some of the other ways that even mentoring in that you are worthwhile to spend a little bit of time, money, and effort to do it, get it done right. As opposed to having to circle back, fix the errors, which can also often be costly. So I think that that's a good mistake. You know, it's an easy mistake to learn or to make, to make as a startup or small business, because everybody, you always have more things to spend money on than things or money to spend, but at mm -hmm. the same time, choose where you need the expertise that are that you, and then go get that expertise for those areas. So I think that's exactly. a great thing to learn. Now, second question I'm, I'll jump to that I always ask is, um, if you're talking now to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Save your money first. That was one of the big things we did when, um, when we knew we were going to start our own company. We set up the um, initial business formation in 2009, did not become uh, or did not quit our day jobs and go full time until June of 2010. And that was because we did not want to quit our jobs, start working and realize, well, crud, I either have to say yes to everything because I don't have any money or I have to go find another job right away because I don't have any money. And I think that when entrepreneurs decide to go start, start their own thing, 
they often think, well, I'm going to be profitable right away. And that's just simply not true. It takes time to build your minimum viable product. It takes time to turn a real profit. And if you're not willing to put in those hours, your evenings and weekends while you carry a time day job, mm. um, which is what we did for the first year, then you have to be willing to save at least a year's worth of your salary, a year's worth of expenses so that mm. you can live off of that or else you will run to another job and give up on your dream. And so I did both. I um, spent a year working 40 hours in my evenings and weekends while doing 45 hours in my day job. So 85 hours a week. And when you start your own company, you're going to work 85 hours a week anyway. So, you know, you might as well just get used to it. Mm. But then I also um, took half of my income and socked it away in savings and retaught myself to spend only half of my income. That way, a year later, I had half of that income in savings. And that was a year worth of expenses for me. And Holy cow, if I didn't have that money stocked away in savings, I might have quit early and mm. gone and gotten another job. Well, I think that, you know, one thing I almost build on top of that, a lot of things, the other temptation is, is if business is going well. So you, let's say you start getting your startup and you sock away that money, because to your point, my my general experience with almost every startup or small business is it usually takes two or three times as long as you think it's going to take and two or three times as much money. And so if you don't have that, you know, in place and really overestimate whatever you think is realistically going to take, you're not going to make it to viability or to profitability. But even once you make because the, then the other extreme is, is once you do make it to viability and profitability is, is you still want to start repaying yourself or sucking the money back out of the business. And then you're kind of putting yourself right back in there because next time you hit the, the next COVID or the next recession or the next down market or just, you know, bump in your own industry too often is, well, you know, you, now you're trying to run out and get loans, you're trying to support the business, and you're never continuing to set aside that money. So I think, first of all, having that war chest to get going, but then also continuing to maintain it so that you have those cash reserves is a great is a great piece of uh, advice for all people that are getting into startups and small businesses. Exactly. Spot on. So well, as we wrap up, and there's always more rabbit holes, more things that would be fun to chat on that we never quite have time for. But if people want to reach out to, they want to use your services, they want to read your book, they want to be an employee, they want to be an investor, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to find out more and connect up with you? Best thing is to remember the three words, killer visual strategies. Um, KillerVisualStrategies.com is where you can jump on and see the agency, get to know the people in the agency, get to know our work. Killer mm. Visual Strategies, the book, is for sale on Amazon. Um, I highly suggest checking it out. You'll learn all of our thinking. Um, and then you can find me on LinkedIn at Amy Valiet um, or through Killer Visual Strategies on LinkedIn as well. Um, and I am going to be starting a, um, a series of tips for entrepreneurs on LinkedIn mm. very soon here. So I highly, highly suggest you check it out. I'll be posting on a regular basis very soon. All right. Well, I definitely encourage everybody to check out any and all of the above and uh, certainly uh, plenty of uh, resources to learn and to grow. 
Well, thank you for coming on the podcast, Amy. It's been fun. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you uh, have a, your own journey to tell and you'd like to be on the podcast, feel free to go to inventiveguest.com and apply to be on the show. If you are a listener, also make sure to click subscribe so you get notifications as all the awesome episodes come out and leave us a rating so new people can find us. And last but not least, if you ever need help with your patents and trademarks, just go to strategymeeting.com. We're always here to help at Miller IP Law. Thank you again, Amy, and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thank you so much, Devin. Really appreciate it.